Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, we've embarked upon a, uh, a massive literature review of the causes and treatments for anxiety and depression and PTSD. So to find out more about the effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, James M. Greenblatt. He's a functional psychiatrist, part of the Orthomolecular Hall of Fame inductee. He's the author and founder of Psychiatry Redefined, and uh, he's a pioneer in the field of integrative medicine. We're going to talk about uh, his clinical and uh, his research work. So, James, thank you for coming. Uh, my pleasure. It's good to be uh, with you today. So are you engaged in uh, in seeing patients only, or are you doing research or a mixture? Like, What's your work schedule like right now? Well, I've been um, practicing psychiatry for almost 35 years and uh, always doing clinical work, so always seeing patients and uh, training doctors. And I, I don't do formal research, but the work that we've been doing over 35 years is just different and off kind of the um, the traditional symptomatic treatment in psychiatry. So there's clinical research, I guess, is a term I would use, not uh, academic published paper research. Okay. And w- within psychiatry, what, what have you chosen to become your focus? What kind of conditions? Well, you know, I've gone through the list. I'm a child and uh, adolescent uh, psychiatrist, and um, we have now seven books. And so I'm slowly getting through all, most of the major psychiatric disorders, uh, ADHD, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, uh, my uh, focus over the past uh, 20 years has been in eating disorders, um, anorexia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and bulimia, which is the most um, life-threatening of all major psychiatric disorders. Oh, oh uh, which one? Anorexia or bulimia? Or uh, Well, anorexia. And the highest risk of suicide is anorexia, and the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness uh, is anorexia nervosa. Well, I guess let's let's focus on these conditions. So, how does anorexia and/or bulimia and/or other conditions arise? Like, what 
how do they tend to start in a person? Well, my, my work as what I would call a functional medicine practitioner focusing on mental health and mental illness is, you know, looking at genetic vulnerability. Most of our major psychiatric disorders have a genetic vulnerability, but it's just uh, that liability doesn't mean you're going to get depressed or anorexia. It means there's a likelihood that the genes run your family. And the work that we've been doing is looking at these nutritional deficiencies and metabolic abnormalities that can trigger this genetic vulnerability. So the bulk of our work over many years has been understanding how nutrition affects brain function and how malnutrition affects major psychiatric illness. Um, what have you seen as the tie between nutrition and uh, psychiatric illness? Does, does the illness arise first and then the eating commensurately gets worse? Or is it someone's been eating poorly for a long time and then this is one of the fallout consequences? You know, it's a, it's a little of both. Um, and it's not necessarily eating poorly. A lot of the patients that we're seeing have been, you know, eating the perfect diet or thought it was the perfect diet, organic, whole foods. Uh, but they've either have genetic vulnerability to low levels of certain nutrients. B12 is, is very common. And, uh, or there's a abnormality in absorption. Things like celiac disease, other inflammatory bowel diseases have um, much higher rates in those with a major psychiatric illness. And those aren't all, always looked at by traditional psychiatrists. Well, from a functional medicine perspective, do you do a blood panel and look at hormone levels, et cetera, and then make recommendations? Or how does it work? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think um, I think Dr. Amen was the one that, that said it, you know, psychiatry is the only field that doesn't examine the organ we're treating. And so our current model in psychiatry is just making educated guesses based on symptoms. So yes, blood work and, and objective tests, hair testing, urine testing, uh, blood testing, um, all genetic testing, all can provide data to help us make decisions as to how to treat uh, patients with major psychiatric illness. Well, what are some of the common pathways that are disrupted or downregulated or upregulated or that, that lead to these conditions? Well, some are, are really kind of very simple but ignored in psychiatry. I, I mentioned vitamin B12 and, and vitamin D deficiency. People think about it for bones and for immune function, but vitamin D is required uh, to make serotonin in the brain. So we see vitamin D deficiency associated with both depression anxiety, and dementia, and there's good research to support it. And many of the other B vitamins, as well as, you know, what we call these, you know, toxic heavy metals, so lead in children, mercury, cadmium, these are heavy metals that interfere with uh, absorption and can produce psychiatric uh, illness. Which kind of uh, imbalances seem to predispose someone to, I mean, is it specific enough where you can tell based on imbalances or genetic pathways or et cetera, oh, this person is much more likely to have a problem with bulimia versus anorexia versus something else? Is it that specific? No, I, that's a good question. I think what we look for is nutritional imbalances, but the core foundation of, of functional medicine, if you will, is, is concept of everyone's different, you know, biochemical individuality. So a vitamin B12 deficiency might look very different in terms of symptoms in, you know, 10 different people. Someone might have classic uh, fatigue. Someone else might have uh, anxiety and panic attacks. So there's not, when we talk about nutrition, it's very hard uh, until, unless we have severe vitamin deficiency disorders. It's very hard to say this deficiency results in this symptom. It is really unique for that individual. If someone has anorexia or bulimia or one of these conditions, 
they don't look into diet or genetics, et cetera, and they rely on like CBT or other therapies or talk therapy only, are they likely to get help or is uh, diet like critical or uh, understanding the genetics critical in order to being able to overcome these conditions? Well, I mean, I think they, they are, um, you know, our treatment rates for eating disorders, anorexia in particular, is, is not good. There's a high relapse rate and there's really quite diverse uh, treatment programs looking at it differently. So no one has really addressed what is obvious, someone who's been restricting their intake for many, many years, ha- having nutritional deficiencies. So it's a lot about, you know, restoring weight, a lot about therapy. Um, not as much attention has been placed on these nutritional deficiencies in terms of um, treatment and recovery. Would be a typical path of help that you would go through with someone that has anorexia bulimia? Do you do blood work first? Uh, do you do genetic genotyping first? Like what, what's a typical process? Well, I think uh, anorexia is probably, you know, a little easier to describe because it's very homogeneous disorder. The symptoms are quite profound and, and life-threatening. And we assume that all of our patients with anorexia are mal- malnourished. So testing would help us to understand if there is genetic deficiencies or changes that would affect nutrients or breakdown of neurotransmitters. So genetic testing, looking at vitamin levels, mineral levels, amino acid levels, and then starting supplementation. So in addition to the therapy, in addition to the refeeding and support, our approach is looking at nutritional supplementation to enhance the recovery and the the poor outcomes that we've had for half a century. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. With anorexia and bulimia, though, part of the approach is diet-focused. How do you get them to eat the supplements? What if they fear that the supplements will make them fat or, you know, they throw them up? Then what do you do? Yeah, no, a very good question. I, I think when, you know, the way I approach anorexia, I've been doing it for a long time, is because their fear of weight gain uh, is so profound and uh, often leads to a death, that we, you know, avoid that and focus on symptoms that they want relief from, which is usually their digestive, their nausea, their bloating, and their anxiety. So we help them understand that the supplementation will decrease anxiety, help them sleep better, decrease the digestive problems they have. So we use digestive enzyme, probiotics, and and supplements like zinc, which will help digestion. And as they improve, then they're much more motivated to participate in treatment and understand that they have an illness. The core symptom of anorexia nervosa is this distorted body image, believing that they are overweight when they're malnourished. So it takes either sometimes medicine, oftentimes nutritional support to kind of help with that uh, distorted body image. Is it, again, because part of the solution is nutrition, do you have to give like IV fluids or like, what do you do if someone's really having a problem and the treatment itself, they just won't engage in because of the eating problem? 
It takes time and patience. There are times we need IV fluids. There are times you need NG tubes. But oftentimes, you know, with with encouragement and support, uh, they'll slowly um, be able to restore some weight. And the nutritional supplements, one, they're no calories, so they're not as they don't struggle as much taking the supplements as as they might with you know rapid consumption of food. And do they feel about the supplements that they are food, or do they feel like they're other or medication? Like in the mind of the patient, what have you noticed? I think many patients do feel relief with some of the supplements. It, it helps again their anxiety, their sleep, uh, sometimes the depression, and difference is becomes motivating. You know, for further treatment, the the goal is really helping them uh, want. Uh, treatment and get motivated for treatment because when anorexia nervosa becomes life-threatening is when our patients don't believe that they have a problem, even though they have uh, malnutrition and a life-threatening illness. How long does it take to progress either anorexia or bulimia to a point where you're like medically in a lot of danger? Uh, we're seeing kids much younger. You know, we've admitted kids eight, nine, ten years of age. It can progress very quickly. So it, it really varies, um, but we've seen, you know, averages between 12 and we've seen, you know, 70 and 80 year old um, men and women as well. So, um, you know, usually a change in diet, either going on a diet to lose weight. Does it happen more in, in young girls versus the overall population? And, you know, for older people, it's kind of strange it would happen after all that time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I think um, typically it is, um, you know, uh, adolescent women more than men, although the rates are going down. But there's a, a, a significant number of women, uh, more middle age, that struggle with eating disorders and don't always get the, the treatment that they need because people just assume it's just a, uh, you know, adolescent problem. But you no, know, people throughout the lifespan uh, struggle with um, serious eating disorders. Why would this um, affect someone in their, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? Like what, what happens in a person's life where it didn't affect them all their life and now that they're older, it affects them? You know, they might have maintained their health and, and maybe they were exercising, running marathons and uh, being able to kind of control intake of food at that point. And they might have had a, a knee injury and they couldn't exercise. And then they start worrying uh, about weight uh, there could have been a stress or trauma in their life. There's a large, a high incidence of, of trauma, even PTSD in adults who are admitted to treatment programs for anorexia nervosa. So any major stress, again, with that genetic vulnerability and the nutritional deficiencies uh, that follow could result in an eating disorder. And why is anorexia a lot more dangerous than bulimia? The, I mean, they both could be life-threatening. Bulimia, they're a you know, electronite abnormalities, but anorexia, besides, again, the, the low weight and the malnutrition and the subsequent, uh, you know, cardiac disease and uh, health consequences, as I mentioned, suicide is a common cause of death. And so there's a highest suicide risk in our patients with anorexia nervosa. And the longer they struggle with this disorder, the higher the risk. What are some of the long-term consequences of bulimia? I would think you would get the same malnutrition, you know, the acid eating away at the esophagus. I mean, it seems like, I guess, anorexia is more acute and happens faster, but bulimia should be, I would think, just as damaging, or is it not? 
No, absolutely. I I think um, many patients, uh, you know, with bulimia, the treatment models are a little easier and, but the electrolyte abnormalities, potassium um, is life-threatening. Some of the damage, uh, I've just saw a patient with their complete um, teeth had to get redone uh, in their 20s because of the urging behaviors. So there's uh, severe uh, medical consequences to bulimia as well. Are there any new treatments or new trends that you're seeing in anorexia and neobulimia? Well, I think like everybody else, uh, there's research on the psychedelics. People are looking at transcranial magnetic stimulation and ketamine, but nothing really has some kind of dramatically shifted in the treatment of anorexia, except for uh, there's now a much clearer acknowledgement in the medical community that anorexia is a brain-based illness. So that has been shown with major international genetic studies and other research, MRIs, PET scans, versus 20 years ago when I started, people still blamed families and parents and the kids as a, as a disorder of willpower. But we now know it's a brain-based disorder. Treatment have not shifted. There's not tremendous breakthroughs. My work is just trying to educate people on how malnutrition is uh, pervasive, and if we treat it, outcomes improve. Well, like what's changed over the past 18 months with, uh, you know, the virus situation in terms of these two illnesses? Uh, eating disorder rates have almost uh, has doubled. Every eating disorder program in the country and, and uh, around the globe uh, have waiting, waiting lists. Um, people can't get the help they need. And what's happened in the pandemic um, has resulted in a, a major increase in both the number of kids with eating disorders and those seeking treatment. Why do you think that is? Is it just overall stress has pushed people in these directions or is there something else causing it? No, I think it's some, um, you know, the same formula, this genetic vulnerability. Uh, the kids that I've talked to that kind of been at home, bored, stressed out, so they might lose, you know, go on a diet, lose a few pounds, and then some individuals can't stop, and that's that genetic vulnerability uh, anorexia. So some of it is just um, trying to lose some weight and then can't stopping. Other it is just the stress and the, the, a lot of people, the visuals on, on Zoom, people comparing themselves and um, struggling with you know, body image. Again, genetic vulnerability, stress, nutritional deficiencies, kind of the formula. And I think COVID has just kind of put gasoline on that fire. Are there any um, particular molecular pathways or genetic predispositions that make the likelihood of anorexia or bulimia like many, many times higher? Or are they all more subtle nudges and propensities towards having these problems? Well, we we see a a high propensity of another psychiatric illness, you know, called OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. So oftentimes the family history of OCD or the patient might have OCD, which means they have, um, you know, the intrusive obsessive thoughts. It might be around cleanliness or germs. And then it starts to focus around food and body image. So OCD is probably the most common path. And then, as I mentioned, trauma and, uh, and stress is also a path towards an eating disorder. Does self-harm play a role? I mean, in addition to, you know, not eating well, et cetera. We're throwing up, you know, cutting, things like that. Do they tend to be ride-along issues with anorexia and bulimia? Well, I think they're they're common in, in kids now. So we see it in adolescents across a lot of psychiatric illnesses, depression, 
anxiety, and certainly uh, anorexia and bulimia, the um, self-injury uh, also we found has been related to nutritional deficiencies, particularly uh, those kids that aren't getting adequate protein. Some of our longstanding vegan and vegetarians is, I believe, a, a major risk factor in adolescence. When we get through puberty, we need extra nutrients like zinc and fats to support brain development. And these restrictive diets can result, uh, in my experience, in increased self-injury, cutting, not being able to kind of regulate moods. What are your thoughts going forward on what's going to happen with, you know, mental illness in general? Where do you see the trends going? Are they going shifting towards more younger people, you know, more kids? So like what, what are the major trends you see evolving over the next couple of years here? Well, I mean, I think, you know, people have used words like epidemic or tsunami of mental health and mental illness as suicide rates continue to increase. So I believe the the good news is people are talking about it, celebrities, athletes. So now we can talk about depression and anxiety. Uh, my concern is the current model of treatment is just, you know, polypharmacy is medications. And I believe there's uh, many other opportunities to intervene with lifestyle changes and the nutritional psychiatry that uh, we've been focused on for many years. So there's awareness but I think the field of psychiatry has a long way to go in extending their model beyond just medication. Are there more functional psychiatrists like yourself coming out? Or is it still like most of the psychiatrists that people will find are the traditional, like, here's an SSRI type person? No, I think um, th I think things are changing. I was just at a conference. Uh, it's called Integrative Medicine for Mental Health. Between online and in person, there were almost 500 clinicians. This was for professionals. Uh, we have a training program, a fellowship where we train doctors and more and more uh, doctors, both early in their career and late in their career, are interested in learning this material. So absolutely, field of uh, integrative and functional medicine is, is growing and, and looking towards mental health and mental illness as an approach. Okay, very good. Well, James, um, what areas... And where and how can you help people? Like if people want to find out more, where can they go to find out more about you? Well, I have a website, uh, jamesgreenblattmd.com is where we have uh, the books, which are written for consumers. And then our professional training is at psychiatryredefined.org. There's lots of free uh, webinars and courses by doctors um, who've been doing this for many, many years. So there's a lot of information to share. Okay. Well, very good. Well, James, thank you for coming on. And I'm glad there are psychiatrists that are moving towards more of a functional approach because it just seems like, you know, the more holistic, uh, the better. So thank you for what you do. Great. Thank you, Richard, for the work that you're doing. So I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.